I'd invite you to pray with me, please. And gracious Heavenly Father, we bring our hearts to you, open, earnest, and willing, Lord, that you might enter in and by your Spirit, Lord, capture the focus and the imagination of our heart and of our lives. And Lord, in obedience to your claim upon us, we give ourselves willingly to you. And Lord, in that, we ask that you would teach us the simplicity of the life, Lord, that you've called us to live, so that in that, Lord, in simple ways, we might grow in our dependence and reliance upon you each and every day. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Before I begin this morning, I probably should confess that I feel like I've kind of joined Ebenezer Baptist Church and that I have a cold this morning as well. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I, I, I spent a good part of this week babysitting grandchildren. Um, it's always nice to be able to blame it on them. Um, and my, my, my little granddaughter, a year and a half old granddaughter, as I was babysitting her uh, on, uh, this week, um, she had such a bad cold. And uh, she couldn't get down for a nap. And so I, I, for almost two hours, she slept on my, on my chest. You know how it is, little babies there. And when my daughter-in-law came in and, and took her, and she, she woke up and took her, there was a, 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 a big cake of, <laughs> right there. And I, I looked at that to myself, man down, man down, medic, medic. <laughs> what was really funny is that then yesterday when my daughter-in-law and, and brought, stopped by the house with our granddaughter to drop some stuff off, and she realized that I was starting to get sick. She goes, oh, are, are you getting sick? And, and I said, I don't know, ask her. <laughs> and, and that little girl looked at me, and the look on her face was just precious. It's like, I got you. <laughs> I own you. <laughs> and the truth is, she does own me, so not just with bacteria, but also uh, she owns my heart as well. So I don't know why I shared that with you, other than to say, be patient with me with the scratchy voice. Now this morning, I, what I'd like to do is invite you to join with me as we embark on a journey this winter in the Gospel of Luke. Now this is going to be a bit of an unusual sermon in that I have to do a little bit of background work before we actually get into the text. So, uh, but it's all going to come together. Be patient with me. Now some of you may remember back in December when I mentioned that uh, 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 on a general liturgical basis, uh, the, the church year is divided into three general parts. That begins really with a focus in the fall on, on the Old Testament as an anticipation uh, for the coming of Christ, which occurs at Christmas. And, and, and that focus of study then leads into a focus of the winter that takes us from Christmas to, to Pentecost and, and, and Easter, which is then fixated on Jesus Christ. And then it turns for the remainder of the year from Pentecost on to the New Testament and the life of the church. That's the general outline of, of, of the thoughts of the church. And it's an ancient outline. <clears throat> and in planning our time together for the next few months, I, I decided I'd invite you to, enjoy, uh, to join me on a journey with Jesus that would take us into a gospel and the gospel of Luke. Now, you may ask yourself, well, Why? Well, what's the purpose? Well, the answer is very simple. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. 
And the Bible presents him as God in the flesh. In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Word become flesh to dwell among us. And he does it for a very special reason. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, so that we might behold in him, Jesus Christ, the glory of God, full of grace and truth, so that in John chapter 1, verse 12, we might receive him, believe him, and in receiving him, might have the right to become the children of God. Christianity is Christ. I will never forget a conversation I had with a friend many years ago. He said, our, our, our faith really is more than a doctrine, he told me. He said, it's a, real, it's a relationship with, with the Lord, Jesus Christ. And we spend a lot of time learning doctrine, but how much effort do we put into developing a personal relationship with this person, Jesus Christ? Do we even know him, what he is like, and how he acts? And then he hit me with this challenge. He said, Lyle, let me ask you, have you ever taken your congregation through a gospel one step at a time, taking the time to expose them to Jesus Christ. It was years ago, and, I, and it was, in fact, quite convicting. And, and it took me back to my record of preaching. And when I went back and reviewed the series of messages that I had given, I, I, I noticed that while there were sermons here and there taken from passages in the Gospels, I really had not dedicated time just to linger and journey with Jesus and focus on the Lord. And so I made it a commitment then from my ministry to periodically and systematically go through a gospel at a time with care and take time, as it were, to trace the lines of his portrait in order to truly know the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. It's been a worthy effort. The word portrait, by the way, is a, is a good one to describe the purpose of a gospel. And there are in our hands four portraits that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them is centered on Jesus Christ, but each one of them also has their own angle, a unique dimension that exposes us to more and more of the, of the great dimensions of the character of Jesus Christ. And so Luke begins his gospel stating what his unique dimension is with a clear purpose of the portrait that he presents and he paints. Now, I trust, like I said, that you'll forgive me this morning as we, as we then come up to speed because we're going to join the journey to, uh, in mid-stride by going to chapter 11 and then moving from chapter 11 beyond. But to do that, we need context. We need to catch up with the disciples in this journey to Jesus, so be patient with me. The context of Luke begins with a statement of purpose that is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. There you'll find that Luke writes, he says, I have written this, this gospel, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Taught about what? Taught about Jesus Christ. The exact truth. Exact truth, that's a very interesting term. You see, and, and, and a meaningful term, Luke was a doctor. And with with the care of, of, of being a man of science, a physician, he chose to examine the life of Jesus Christ with the same precision that he would have had in looking at a patient's charts and test results, wanting to get the exact picture. In fact, in verse 12, uh, 2, he says, 
that he had studied the accounts of the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word, he says. And he compiled the reams of data and methodically recorded the events of Christ's life, as he says in verse 3 of chapter 1 in Luke, in consecutive order from the beginning. I like the Gospel of Luke because Luke, more than any of the three, really goes into detail and especially provides the human color of the story of Jesus Christ. He describes the sick in detail. A doctor would do that. He has emotions where other writers would simply state facts. And his audience is the whole of humanity, not just the Jewish nation. And he presents Jesus not only as the Messiah of God, but as the Savior of the world. And in fact, as some identify Luke's gospel as presenting Jesus, they do so as the Son of Man, a real human being. His humanity then reaching out to the whole world all the way across the time to touching you and me. Jesus reaching. I like the way one commentator, Michael Wilcock, writes about Luke's gospel. He says, the individual is never lost in the crowd, but that Jesus takes us in this gospel one by one. Listen to what he goes on and he writes. He says, this gospel is not only for Jews, but for Greeks and for Romans and Samaritans too. It is not only for males, but also for females, and not simply important women like the wife of Herod's steward, but widows and cripples and prostitutes as well. And it's not only for freemen, it's also for slaves. Indeed, for all whom society despises, for the poor, the weak, and the outcast, for the thief and the quizzling. And all of these, Luke delights to show as particular individuals, just like you and me. A galaxy of portraits glitter across his 24 chapters. These are real people. And among them, the human condition is really to be found. And among them stands the Son of Man. When you read the gospel, you will find all of them, but even more, I would suspect you would find yourself. And even deeper, and in reading through the gospel, you will not only find that crowd of humanity, you also find standing center to the Mass, the Savior of each and every one. In reading the Gospel, there is one verse that seems to leap off the page. And it's one verse, really, that summarizes the entire mission of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, if you were to memorize only one verse from the Gospel of Luke, this would be the verse that you should memorize. For there, the entire purpose of the gospel is summarized in one one verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the word lost could describe every single one of us. Every human who has ever wandered on planet Earth in search of purpose and meaning, the type of human condition found in the real people of the gospel, we are the lost. And Jesus... Here is the one who's on the rescue. Notice the verbs that appear in that verse, Luke 19, verse 10. He came to seek and to save. The the verse sums up the entire mission of Jesus Christ. And it also unlocks the structure of the gospel as it is written. As I prepared for my study of the gospel, I read the entire book at one sitting every day for about a month. I would suggest 
that practice for you, simply to prepare for the messages that we'll have during the wintertime. It's good to kind of get the grand picture as it flows. Uh, and, And as I did it, it was as if I began to notice then the stitching that held the story together, the outline of the story. And there were three parts to the gospel of Luke that came to mind. And it was as if each of those three verbs in Luke 19.10 served as a headline to each one of those three parts. In Luke, from chapters 1 to the first part of chapter 6, you have the story of Jesus Christ coming, his birth, Christmas. Many of the great stories of Christmas that we have are all recorded in Luke. He came then to seek. Now we have the story of his coming. He actually arrived on planet Earth. He was born. He had a childhood. He came. And his coming is a historical fact that we just finished celebrating at Christmas. But from chapter 6 to about chapter 19, about the end of chapter 19, then we have a picture of Jesus seeking the lost reaching out and drawing people to himself. Even in his teaching, we are exposed to the heart of a God who cares for the lost and then goes out and draws them to himself. And from then, the end of the chapter 19 through 24, then we have not only him seeking, but then saving the lost. And we have the great drama of salvation at the end of, that cha- of, of the book. The sacrifice, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, all sealing that successful rescue mission for your soul. He came to seek, and to save the lost. And that's the gospel of Luke. And so now, this morning, we we join the journey of the gospel by turning to the 11th chapter. And as we turn to the 11th chapter, we find ourselves about halfway into a search and rescue operation. It's, It's my plan to begin here, and then through the summer, up to Easter and maybe beyond, to take a walk with Jesus at this meaningful point in time. In a general sense, up until this point in that searching moment, Jesus has been reaching out to everyone, multitudes, in all the villages and the cities of Judea and Galilee, healing with miraculous power and speaking with surprising authority. So it's no surprise then that the crowds surround him now wherever he goes. We've come to that point, critical mass. Crowds are surrounding him wherever he goes. And in a general sense, they are seeking him as much as he is seeking them. But in the very personal sense, in the process of having reached out, Jesus now has gathered together a circle of disciples. Certainly 12 of them who are later known as the apostles. But even more than that, he has this uh, this inner circle and another circle of at least 72 in chapter chapter 10 here, right before chapter 11. Finally, this group of 72 have formed around him. It's almost like his movement, his journey has coalesced into a family fellowship. And this group of men and women, they are the ones who then serve as the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word, the people who would have spoken to Luke and allowed him to write his gospel. And you wonder to yourself, what did they witness in Jesus Christ? And you get an answer right away in the first verse of chapter 11. There we read these words. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. 
And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, that may sound like something very innocent to you, doesn't it? It's like, one day, oh, by the way, I just happened to notice, Jesus, you're praying. Do you know anything about prayer? That's kind of interesting. Are you, you're a praying man? Well, that's, that's cool. Do you know anything about it? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, the fact is, it's not that simple. The fact is that Jesus had, had constantly been immersed in prayer, and the disciples had known it. In Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration had occurred during a time of prayer, and the three disciples with him could not help but notice the transfiguration somehow connected with prayer. Connections. And then immediately following that, the healing of a young boy was the product, byproduct of prayer. And they're healing Jesus' prayer. Huh. Curiosity is beginning to, to rise. And along the way, Jesus had allowed the disciples to see him in what is described here in Luke chapter 19 as private prayer. But we cannot help but think that the disciples are beginning to connect the dots all along the way. Something happens in this life of prayer. Something unique is going on in this life of prayer. And it makes all of the difference in the world. And so finally, one of the disciples, and we don't know who it is, he's a nameless disciple, finally just comes out with it. He says, Jesus, teach us to pray. We get an idea, it's your secret. Let us in on the secret. Jesus, teach us to pray. We need to know. Face it. We can all admit that prayer is powerful and that God desires intimate conversation with us as his children. But let's be honest, how many of us struggle to make it a central and meaningful part of our lives? Just the impulse to pray is not enough. Even the most ardent atheist I know will pray when their back is up against the wall. But meaningful prayer, prayer that breathes life into the soul and connects us directly to the heart of the Heavenly Father, prayer that changes the world and the world around us, well, that is something else. Something I'm not familiar with. It's something I have to learn, something we have to learn. And so the request is made by that circle around him. Jesus, we are yours. Teach us to pray. And without any hesitation, Jesus then reveals his private place. Look at verse 2. No hesitation. He says, he said to them, and notice... The plurality of it. It's not just the one nameless disciple who's going to hear the secret. He gathers the whole group around, and you get the feeling he has been looking forward to this particular moment, as if to say, hey, I am glad you asked. I was just waiting for someone to ask the question. And so now, everybody, come over here, take a knee. (laughs) I got something to tell you. And so he said to them, In ways, the request wasn't just a question. 
In fact, I almost look at this and I think to myself, the question itself was a prayer coming to Jesus. Lord, teach me to pray. We read in the scriptures that whenever we pray, those who pray will receive an answer. Well, that question itself was a prayer and he's about to receive an answer to prayer and it's prayer itself. And he said to them, when you pray, Oh, now let me stop here for just a moment. You may recognize the following as the Lord's Prayer. It may sound a little bit awkward or different from you because this prayer is also found in the Gospel of Matthew in a, in a different sort of form, but with the same outline of idea. But you may know it as the Lord's Prayer, but the fact is it is not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. This is a prayer for you and me. It allows us to be able to, like Jesus, learn the language of prayer. This is our prayer. And as you read it, you may think, hey, it's missing a few lines. Let me explain again. This prayer also appears in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Longer Farm, which is fine, because this prayer was meant to be a model, not a rigid formula or mantra. It was to be... To serve as an outline and unlock a door, it is not meant to be an incantation. That is to mindlessly be repeated and repeated in hopes that it may work. As a model, it is meant to to take our heart and turn it into a direction so that then the Lord might be able to fill our lives with meaning. And then the prayer begins. And when it does, it starts with a single word there. He doesn't, you know, he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. I want you to stop and I want you to pause and take a breath and think about it and then fill that with personal meaning. Just to say that word, my Father, God, you are my Father, You are the one who gave me life. Please do not miss the profound part of this in this simple little word. In the process of preparing, I I, I, I read this prayer and I timed myself as I did it. It, it, it. It may be a simple formula, and if it was just an incantation, I actually can rip it off in three seconds flat. You can do that. Time yourself as you read it. But since it is a model, it's going to take me a lifetime to fill each of those words with meaning. And and a lifetime to fully appreciate the privilege in each of those words and the privilege of God as Father. And so Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, on your sermon outline, the notes that you have in the bulletin, I have it as the first half of our life in prayer. And, I, and, I, and, when, and when I was writing the outline, I put it down as our commitment to our Heavenly Father. It's actually supposed to be the word commitment, not submitment. That's my fault. My fingers slipped on the keyboard. And yet I think I made even more of a mistake when I put that. Because now when I think of it, I've got it backwards. It should, in fact, more be our Heavenly Father's commitment to us instead. That's where prayer begins. 
Not long ago, I heard a children's minister tell a story of trying to teach their, her Sunday school class the Lord's Prayer. And some of the children had problems repeating the prayer. But they didn't lack imagination at all. Especially one child who began their prayer by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, how did you know my name? Well, right off, Jesus answered that question. He doesn't tell us to call God friend as though we were equals. He doesn't tell him to call God master as if we were slaves. He doesn't tell him to call God king as if we were faceless citizens somehow lost in the masses. He says, when you pray, say, Father. Call him Father. Because This thing called prayer is a conversation you are having as a child with a parent who knows your name already. Do you realize how special that is? It means that we have access, permission, as it were. Permission to walk into his office, if that's how you want to view heaven. We don't need an appointment. We don't need to have to pass by a secretary's desk or somehow do something to be able to get his attention. We have his permission anytime we want, even on his busiest day, to talk to him and know that he cares. Father, do you have that confidence before God? Those who belong to Jesus Christ do. And along with that, this phrase also means that those who belong to Jesus Christ have some family business as well. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Just linger on that for a bit. The word hallowed means to make holy, to, to captivate with supreme respect, to make your efforts to cleanse, keep it cleansed. You will hear that word hallowed to, to describe very special places. We talk about hallowed ground. We talked about hallowed halls. We talk about places of such profound honor that they would hush our spirit with awe. And as we look at them as places, we would never dream of trashing any of those hallowed places. In fact, we would bend our efforts to keep them clean and pure. And when we pray from the heart, it is hallowed ground. We hallow this name of the Father. We pay attention to the cleansing of the heart in such a way that His will becomes the highest and His desires matter the most and He is reserved for us the highest respect and the greatest love which feeds directly into making His kingdom come to life so that his will surpasses our own. And that, then, we willingly become obedient to his plan with our life. And to make that happen, then, we ask God in prayer to strengthen our core convictions and to live a life of obedience and reliance upon God. The same hollowing his name becomes a very practical and daily exercise, then, as the prayer continues and unfolds. An exercise where our core convictions are basically then applied to our basic needs, as simple as they may seem. He's gone from hollowing the name and 
of the Lord. And then he goes into verse 3 by saying, give us this day our daily bread. How simple is that? Our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, takes our need for daily bread to heart. And the term daily bread embraces all of our physical requirements, food, shelter, clothing. And the Father wants us to depend on Him daily for the essentials in life so that we can then find the courage and the confidence that allows us to awake and face each and every day. Do it daily. Give us this day our daily bread. And next in verse 4, out of confidence, then comes the, the, the matter of, 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 of quality of heart. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Our Heavenly Father takes our need for spiritual cleansing to heart. As one commentator has put it, what food is to the body, forgiveness is to the soul. And if he takes that need that we have for sustenance to heart, he realizes that need of forgiveness to sustain our soul as well. To receive forgiveness, we simply and humbly and daily ask for it. It's a matter of conscience, the writer says, that comes from a soft and repentant heart that is willing and able to offer forgiveness as much as it is eager to receive it. So we hollow our hearts and we place the name of God in our lives and in that find courage and confidence, but then also clear conscience at the very core. The third of the petitions there in verse 4 says, lead us not to temptation. And the idea of this is, do not allow us to be led into temptation. That's how the grammar reads in the Greek. Do not allow us to be led into temptation. And it is a prayer then for protection against all the traps that are laid out by Satan that surround us. And you know what it's like. We walk through our days in our world as if we were going through a minefield. And so it's a prayer for protection against those traps. And the disciples standing around hearing this think to ourselves, so what is the secret, Jesus? And the answer is every day, pray that God will awaken us to our vulnerabilities, and then guard our eyes and guide our thoughts and keep us pure each and every day. And so we pray. And in reality then, at the end of that, prayer becomes something much easier than we would have ever thought. You see, we are tempted to think prayer to be too hard or too high or to be too holy, and the thought of prayer may give us an excuse for not doing it because It may, in fact, be too complicated theologically. But according to Jesus, look how simple this model has become. We can, because it's life. Even the most sinful, shallow, silly, or even stupid with a capital stoop among us can do it. You do not have to be a master of some mystical method. You do not have to be a master of any method at all. It is as simple as a child talking with a father. And that is what prayer is. The single most important piece of advice Jesus offers about prayer from the very beginning could be summed up in one word. Begin. God makes it easy. Just do it. 
And the freedom that Jesus then has taught about prayer makes it easy to learn then the language of prayer. I love the way John Bombardo put it in his book on prayer. He said, Jesus gives us the permission to plagiarize his prayer. (laughs) The Lord's Prayer, he writes, frees us from the tyranny of spiritual creativity and allows us to rest in the confidence that something's of something certain and true. Instead of fabricating something snappy in order to garner God's attention, Jesus would have us lose all such originality and simply plagiarize what he has put into his word and at the invitation of the Lord himself to find a simplicity in prayer. I love that. You have the permission to plagiarize. And I love the thought of not having to come up with something original before we speak with the Lord about what is on our heart in order to get his attention. Jesus' model here frees us from slavishly following word for word prayer, but gently offers us general guidelines to put ourselves and then all of our basic needs into God's God's hands. It's as simple as that. I love the story that is told by one of my former students from Wheaton College who, with his wife, his newlywed wife, went down to the streets of Chicago on the south side and planted a church in a very, very tough neighborhood. He told the story about a, a woman he knew who showed up at church, and <clears throat> when she would, she, she prayed the very same simple prayer every time she came. You might consider her own version of the Lord's Prayer, and you'd probably be right. It, it went simply this way, her prayer, her only prayer, her every prayer was this, O oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. She prayed it week after week after week. And the kids at the church started laughing every time that she would open her mouth because they knew it would be the same prayer that would be coming out. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And finally, someone came to her and asked her, why do you pray that simple little prayer? And she said this. She says, well, I'm just combining the two prayers that I know. We live in a bad neighborhood, and some nights there are bullets flying, and I have to grab my daughter and hide on the floor, and all I know how to do is to cry out, Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! But when I wake up in the morning and I see that we're okay, the only thing I can say is, Thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! And when I got to take my baby to the bus stop and she gets on that bus, I don't know what's going to happen to her while she's away. And so all I can do is cry out, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. And then when it's 3 p.m. and it comes and that bus returns and my baby steps out and is safe, all I can do is say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. She goes, those are the only two prayers I know. And when I get to church, God has been so good, so I can all, all I can do is just put those two prayers together. Oh Lord, thank you, Jesus. Prayer does not need to be complicated. It needs to come from the heart. And so here we are. We've caught up to Jesus. We have now joined the journey with his disciples. We are at Luke chapter 11. And Jesus, if prayer is your secret, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. I could see myself if I was that unnamed disciple. I'd be there... Jesus, teach me to pray. I've got my pen, I've got my paper, and I'm ready to take notes. And he would have smiled at me and he said, set them all aside. It's really quite simple. Say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Can you do that? Can you do that? Good. Now, say it again and again and again and again and again. Not only because it's the truth, but in saying it, you will find meaning in your life. Luke's version of the disciples' prayer is shorter and probably then, as a result, probably less familiar to you than the one that is found in Matthew. But it is our model. It's our job now to fill that model in with words of personal meaning and to do it each day, each moment of our lives. And I'm going to ask you, it's in the bulletin, and I believe it's on the screen, to join me as we come to the close in this message by praying the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.